and welcome to season three. My name is Rachel. And I am Andrew. And we are Picture the Scene Podcast, brought to you by Aura Studios. We're a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. And did I mention we're on season three? Who? I feel like it needs to be mentioned again. This is an epic achievement, even if I do say so myself. Oh, it's amazing. I know we're talking about ourselves here and you can't get anything more self-centered than that. But just for our listeners out there, like when you're... You don't normally get to a, a podcast at the very beginning, so you, you're normally binging to catch up. It doesn't feel like nothing when you're moving between seasons, but when you actually create one, it, it, it's just like a, such a mini achievement, isn't it? Like you've you've put like we have 26 episodes in a season. That's 26 weeks, so we basically have we've now got more than a year's worth of episodes for people Amazing. to listen to. Yeah, I think it's epic, epic, and we should pat ourselves on the back. Woo woo. As Andrew just said, we do bring you a new episode on a weekly basis, and Andrew mainly focuses on those lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, I like to take on some of the bigger, more well-known cases from time to time. But today is a little different, as we're trying out something new. Today, we're going to co-present a very well-known case from the USA. We'll get into the case in a minute, but I just wanted to pause here for a minute and ask for your feedback on today's episode. And that's because it's the first time we're trying this co-hosting out, and we'd like to know what you think about the format. Potentially, would you like to see us co-hosting more episodes in future? Or is it something that we've tried and you're like, yes, guys, stick to the normal scripts, please? Just let us know. And as we are a true crime podcast, listener caution is advised. Today is no different. Our season three opener, entitled Down the Hill, is the first unsolved case I've picked up. So I do hope you enjoy it today. It was actually recommended to us by a long-time listener and Patreon member, Ant Gunn. Last year, Ant got in touch and asked if we'd cover the case, and we were only too happy to oblige. Yeah, definitely. We're always happy to oblige our listeners. And, and yeah, just a note for our listeners out there. If you listen to more than a few of our episodes, you know how much Rachel normally stays away from unsolved cases. So <laughs> the fact that she's covering one is amazing. But I also just want to add a little bit on how we've approached the case today. Because it's an unsolved case, there's lots of speculation out there about who did it and why they did it and all the different suspects. We've tried to, we always try to stay away from speculation and things that we can't fact check. Now, obviously, we have to introduce you to the suspects, but we've tried to stay away from all the, the gossip and stuff we can't really prove one way or the other. Um, but hopefully, we've still given you enough detail. And I think, um, I mean, we, we'll mention it a bit later on as well, but there are some epic like miniseries pods out there which go into a lot more detail. They've got some great um, speakers that come in, uh, you know, like FBI agents and people that have worked with murder cases before. These kind of uh, these kind of series, you know, we've listened to and we love, but we also don't want to like take some of the content from those pods you know that's that's obviously their unique selling point so um what we will do is and we'll say it again shortly but if you love what you hear today go away and listen to to like a mini series on the on the case and try and kind of get more into some of the the facts and some of the lesser known um information that that can be um that can be kind of touched on from those pods okay um before we get into it today there is some stuff we need to cover as you all are familiar with now so if you happen to like what you hear please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer and wherever you listen if you have the capability why not give us a rating and review as well these ratings and reviews mean so much to us because not only do we love hearing from our wonderful listeners 
but it encourages other listeners to find us and come give us a try. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you indeed. Okay, well, back to it. If you like us that much, you want to support us, even after that sideline, you can do so for less than the cost of a small Americano on Patreon. We release bonus content every month and have recently started taking recommendations from our Patreon subscribers. Supporting our pod means the world to us. So thank you to each and every one of you. And with this in mind, I want to say a massive thank you to our latest Patreon subscriber, Charlene Chapman. Welcome aboard, Charlene. Welcome. We hope you enjoy running through our back catalogue of Patreon episodes and we love having you here. So thanks for your continued support. And finally, for now, the links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or by visiting patreon.com forward slash scene pod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. So, Andrew, before we get into it today, season three, how does that feel for you? Great. I'm refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to go. I've missed chatting to you, Rachel. Oh, I also think like that season three break. oh sorry season two break was epic because it actually like not only did we get like maybe a week and a half off to to relax and recoup but it made me realize how much I miss like recording when we're not doing it like sometimes twice a week so no lovely really nice okay so all that's left for me to ask today is are you ready for some true crime yeah I was born ready Rachel but you know what before we get started We've, we've had more pre- pre-crews to this than um, a Star Wars film. But before we get started, I want to give a special shout-out to a fellow podcast out there. Do you remember at the end of last season, you said how you prefer the newer cases and there's more detail? Yeah, that's true. I just feel like there's a lot more stuff online for those. Well, that's not always true. I wanted to do a case on the Teddington Towpath murders for season three. And I'd heard a case a while ago on Murder Mile, and it fascinated me. Now, I don't copy other pods' work, especially not pods I love. And I do love Mike from Murder Mile. He's one of the few I support on Patreon, personally. So I wanted to do my own research on the case, but I had to give up in the end. Oh, no. That's not really like you, though, Andrew. How come? Because to get all the detail you need to get, make a good episode, you need to put in freedom of information requests. You need to go to the National Archives in London and manually go through old paper documents. And it would take such a lot of time that I, I just don't personally have. Well, yeah, coupled with the flight cost and the hotel stay for you to get to London and put in your freedom of information requests. Uh, no, I, I understand that. Yeah, so I, I would highly recommend Murder Mouse to everyone. You can hear all the detail, among other things that Mike goes into. All these episodes are great. But if you want to start somewhere, because he's made so many episodes, episode 107, it's a start of a three-part delve into the tenants and towpath murders, which I think is fascinating. Nice. And especially now that you've said that you're not going to do it for season three, I will absolutely give it a listen and I'll let you know what I think. Thanks for Great. the recommendation. No problem. Okay, for now, though, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you all to sit back, relax and picture the scene. Today, we're taking you back to Monday, the 13th of February, 2017 to the small, picturesque city of Delphi in Carroll County, Indiana. With a population of around 3,000 residents, Delphi is known locally for its tight-knit community, historic downtown area, and beautiful natural surroundings of landscapes, offering residents and tourists plenty of opportunity for outdoor exploring. On this particular day, the weather was quoted as relatively mild in Indiana, 
with highs of around six degrees Celsius. That's 43 degrees Fahrenheit. And lows of approximately minus six, which is around 20 degrees. But like I've said, it's quoted as relatively mild because I actually think that's bloody chilly. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, that, that, that's colder than a cold man's cold bits, isn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed. The skies were mostly cloudy, but the weather was dry and it was perfect for some of the outdoor exploring. The sun was due to set at around 6.20 that evening. Monday the 13th of February happened to be a snow makeup day for the local school district in Delphi. Now I know what you're all thinking, what on earth is a snow makeup day? These are mandated school closure days which are given to students regardless of the fact that it was a perfectly fine day for late winter with zero snow on the ground. But this meant that students Abigail Williams and Liberty German had a day off. The mild weather, coupled with the day off from school, provided the perfect opportunity for the two best friends, 13-year-old Abby and 14-year-old Libby, to spend their free time exploring the Monan High Bridge Trail. The Monan High Bridge is an abandoned railroad bridge that spans Deer Creek, towering around 63 feet, that's 19 metres above the water. Built in 1891, the bridge is one of the highest and longest trestle bridges in the United States. Its striking appearance, along with the stunning views of the surrounding landscape, attracts hikers, photographers and nature enthusiasts all year round. I wonder how well it's been kept, though, if it was built in 1891. Yeah, I know. It makes me think of like, those films you see on, well, the films that you see from America, you know, like, I'm thinking, like, Stand By Me. Have you seen that film? Classic oh, film? yeah. That, that, that type of bridge, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, I have looked at pictures and, like, it's, it's a hotspot for, like, prom photos and wedding photos and it definitely looks a bit sketchy rickety yeah so abby and libby had spent the evening of the 12th up late eating pizza and watching movies together having organized a sleepover knowing that they had monday off school the following morning the 13th they woke up they ate some pancakes they completed a few chores around the house so they could get some pocket money and around lunchtime having exhausted all options to keep themselves entertained inside. So, yeah, just picture the scene here, Rachel. We've both been teenagers many years ago. You're bored of television. You scroll through every possible social media post there is until you get into the ones that you don't want to see. So they decided to go outside and explore Molden High Bridge Trail. However, with the adults busy working, they needed to figure out a way to get there. Can I just say, like, just replace social media posts with MTV music videos when actually, I was a kid? Actually, yeah, and and when I was a kid, it wasn't even MTV. I don't even know what it was. I'm too old to remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I just remember, like, I'd flick through the channels, and by the time I'd seen everything I wanted to see, I was like, right, what's next? Yeah, we only had four TV channels when I was a kid. Anyway. Gosh. Making yourself, sound, making yourself sound really old. It was around 1.30pm when Libby's older sister, Kelsey, eventually gave in and dropped the girls off at the trail parking lot. They'd agreed with Libby's dad to be back at the parking lot just two hours later, ready to be picked up. Plenty of time to get to the bridge and back. The girls began their hike, both excitedly capturing photos and videos of their adventure on their phone. This included a photo which was uploaded to Snapchat of Abby crossing the moon and high bridge between 1.45 and 2.07pm that afternoon. Unfortunately, this would be the last known communication from the girls. When Libby's father, Derek, arrived at the designated pickup location just after 3pm, Abby and Libby were nowhere to be found. Despite several calls and a brief trek of the trails, the girls could not be located, and by 5.30pm, 
law enforcement had been notified and family and friends gathered to organise a search party, scouring the area in the hopes of finding missing Abby and Libby. Sadly, though, the girls would never return from their hike and the search by the authorities and the friends and family of the girls continued well into the next day, February the 14th, when, tragically, the bodies of Abby and Libby were discovered about half a mile away from the bridge exit, down a hill, lying in a wooded area of privately owned land. The discovery marked a grim turning point in the case, as it now transitioned from a missing persons investigation to a double homicide. As the investigation unfolded, and the search of the surrounding wooded area expanded, detectives uncovered a haunting piece of evidence, Libby's phone. Libby, clearly thinking something wasn't quite right during their hike to the bridge, had been using her phone to record video and audio of a man in the distance. In doing this, she'd managed to capture a grainy image of the prime suspect in the double murder, and even better, an audio recording of his voice. In the days that followed, investigators analysed the evidence found at the crime scene and on Libby's phone. Their discovery of the photo depicting a man walking on the bridge, as well as chilling audio recordings of a male voice saying, down the hill, were the only evidence they had to go on. And so at 7pm on Wednesday the 15th of February, Indiana State Police released the image to the public. In this image, a man can be seen walking towards the south side of Monon High Bridge with his hands in his pockets. The man was nicknamed as Bridge Guy, And at this stage of the investigation, the police announced that they wanted to speak with him and anyone else who was present on the trail around the times the girl was last seen. Law enforcement did not state that Bridge Guy was a suspect, only that they wanted to speak with him at this time. However, just four days later, the police confirmed at a press conference that Bridge Guy was now the prime suspect. And days later, on the 22nd of February, they released the audio recording too. A sketch was released to accompany the evidence, but despite thousands of tips pouring in, the identity of the killer remained a mystery. In addition to the photo, as we already mentioned, Libby's phone contained an audio recording of a male voice saying, Down the Hill, which was released in 2017. This chilling command is believed to have been directed at the girls by the suspect. Whilst law enforcement released the original recording just nine days after the girls went missing in 2017, At a press conference two years later, it was revealed that Libby had also captured additional audio recording, allegedly of the same man, also saying, guys. The recordings were played together for the first time to form a sentence, guys, down the hill, in April 2019. It was not confirmed, however, that guys were said at the same time. And actually, when you listen to the recordings, Andrew, it appears there seems to be some static between the words, although it's possible that this is actually law enforcement piecing together that poor audio quality but we'll post a copy of the audio recording in the show notes at this time an updated sketch was also released to the public due to the evolution of the case uh, which had taken place over time investigators have received more tips from the public and and the investigators had actually become concerned that the public was starting to only look out for older men in their 40s to 50s in relation to the the earlier sketch Um, who might have been connected to this double homicide. But the updated sketch showed actually a male in his his 20s to late 30s, so more of a youthful appearance. And police stressed that it was this updated image that better depicted Bridge Guy as the prime suspect in the case. But again, we'll add the sketches to our socials. And I think, like, probably just worth noting, 
that the, the blurred image that you see a bridge guy, how on earth can a sketch artist like create a, a you know a face? And I get I get that the public have said, oh, I saw a man with that like had a, a small forehead or like a large nose or whatever, but like what an impossible task for a sketch artist. Yeah, I've seen those images, and again, yeah, we'll pop up for the social medias, but the better people than me be able to get a a face out of those images to me it's just a blur i mean thankfully we are not employed as sketch artists so you know that's a saving grace really probably why so to date we do not know how the girls died the autopsy results have been sealed this is not unusual though because in many cases which have not yet made it to trial law enforcement choose not to release information about the cause of death and or the circumstances in which the bodies are found as this is often information that only the killer will know and releasing sensitive information like this to the public could potentially have a detrimental impact on any future trial there has been plenty of speculation however around how the girls died whether the bodies were posed and what exactly was left at the crime scene but none of these details have been formally disclosed so what exactly happened to the girls on that fateful day who made a complete mystery for which to me it's just a little bit crazy rachel how often do you hear from law enforcement that the prime suspect has been captured on camera with voice recording, so audio recording of the voice, at the crime scene, but remains unidentified? I can't think of any. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because I thought it before, like, I bet they thought when they got that video image that they had the smoking gun they needed to bring someone in and charge yeah. them. Like, an insane amount of, like, evidence but that must have been soul destroying for him to like remain a complete mystery unidentified yeah. yeah definitely it was so strange okay i just wanted to pause here for a moment though and ask like from what you already know andrew do you think the killer would have been a local resident or someone at least familiar with the area given that the monan high bridge trail was somewhat secluded and actually as well the state of the bridge as we kind of discussed earlier the suspect would have potentially had to have known the terrain allowing them to carry out that crime and it actually then like escape undetected i think they had to have known who it was i mean they had to have known sorry the area because if it was an opportunist crime then you wouldn't go to such a secluded area where there may be no one there for days or weeks so you'd have to know the area they'd have to know where he was leading the girls down the hill that he was secluded and also yeah you'd, you'd have to know that the girls were there as well on going to be on that day so they either had to follow them or had some sort of information that they were privy to knowing that they would be there on that day like it being a public holiday in that particular city on that day yeah but also that the girls were going to go there because yeah because who's to say it could have been a group of like say late teenage boys out there drinking or or smoking weed or something it could you know that's not what a predator's going to want to find is it is that no. not much, much, much look there so so it, to me it feels like they know the area and they knew the two girls were going to be there they might not have known I, the girls but they knew the two girls were going to be there and i do hear what you're saying because all of that makes sense but if he was known to the area he, I, I firmly believe that he'd have been identified. So 
could the killer have been someone passing through Delphi? Maybe with like small knowledge of the trail, but he was a truck driver, potentially a tourist. And that could therefore potentially explain the lack of connections in the local community and the difficulty in identifying him, um, even though that photo and audio have been circulated widely. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I, I think it's probably less likely, though. But um, finally, it was also speculated that the crime could have been committed by a known serial killer or a previously convicted offender who knew the area well. So, like, not somebody on their first first chance. And this is definitely, um, you know, something that we've not kind of dived further into in this pod, but other pods do, like looking at, you know, um, but some of the potential, like, comments that have been made on the crime scene definitely um, could have been someone that kind of knew what they were doing. But this theory also stems from the, like, brazenness of the attack. You know, don't forget, it was broad daylight on a on a school holiday, and they were in the middle of a tourist hotspot. Um, but the, the theory of a, a serial killer just seems a little bit far-fetched. I think in such a close-knit community um, and small city, everyone would have been on high alert if, if like someone was on the loose, there had been a serial killer or a convicted offender that had escaped from prison or, you know, was was causing attacks, attacks and things like that. I think um, I think that would have been like documented more in the press, wouldn't it? And if it was someone who's done it before then there'd be similarities to previous crimes that the police do cross-reference with. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, it, and again, if it's someone who was a repeat offender, then they would do it again afterwards. So, yeah, it wouldn't have just been a one-off, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, you won't be surprised to hear that over the past six years, the case of the two murdered teenage girls in such a tight-knit community like Delphi has generated a number of suspects and theories, both from amateur sleuths and professional investigators. There is an amazing miniseries dedicated to the case, aptly titled Down the Hill. It's hosted by another pod duo, uh, a different Andrew and Barbara. And these guys have gone into far greater detail on the case. So if you are intrigued by anything you've heard in our episode so far today, I'd highly recommend checking this one out too, uh, to kind of go in down the rabbit hole of some of the some of the theories and and definitely, you know, hear from some specialists from the FBI and, um, you know, people that have worked on them. Um, on um, unsolved murder cases before as well. Exactly. And it would have been so easy for us just to cheat and plagiarise their, their podcast and put the details in as if we've done it for ourselves, but that would be unfair and it'd be wrong. So there are some details which you probably really enjoy listening to. So go and give that podcast a listen. But you also won't be surprised, Rachel, to hear that the case has also attracted significant media attention especially due to the TV interviews that the police chief working on a case had taken part in. Whilst these interviews have been instrumental in keeping the case in the public eye and ensuring that the people are aware of the ongoing search for the killer, they have also taken both America and the rest of the world on a rollercoaster ride full of twists and turns as the investigation has progressed throughout the multiple television interviews which have taken place out of the Delphi United Methodist Church. The police chief has provided updates on the case, released new evidence, and appealed to the public for any information that could help lead to an arrest, receiving more than 16,000 tips and interviewing 500 people in the first three months alone. And the tips continue to pour in, even two years later. There was bound to be an emotional and a determined response 
from the law enforcement that really struck a chord with the many viewers across the globe who have expressed their support and offered assistance in any way possible. However, the widespread attention has not always been wanted, as investigators, at times, have struggled to keep fake information about the murders from spreading too. Isn't that just the problem with like all these armchair um, investigators, you know, going on Facebook and spreading like fake news and lies? It's it's really tricky, isn't it? In some cases, when you're just a member of the Joe public trying to get the latest update on the case to understand what's real and what's what's not. Yeah, understand the difference between people wanting to help solve the case mm. and people just wanting likes and clicks. Absolutely, yeah. One aspect of the case that's garnered much interest is the multiple publicly known suspects. Over the years, a number of individuals have been investigated by the police, with some even being named as persons of interest. These suspects have ranged from local residents to out-of-town visitors and even convicted criminals, as we suggested earlier. The police have been meticulous in their investigation of these individuals, interviewing them, conducting searches and collecting forensic evidence. While none of the publicly known suspects have been definitively linked to the murders, their presence in the case has fueled speculation and debate among among the public and the media, something we see all too often these days, I'm afraid. And like, I just wanted to kind of say before we get into going through those suspects, how like everyone was so um, complimentary of how this case has been handled. You know, nothing was leaked um that could have like been detrimental to the case the there were there were no issues when when people were being investigated things weren't like overlooked or missed or you know opportunities were thoroughly looked into every press article i read from you know reputable sources were extremely complimentary and and obviously the delphi police commissioners um, and team had the support of the FBI, which is obviously always going to help cases. But how often do we hear that, like, you know, there's there's a mishap or a hiccup in the early phases of, of a murder investigation that could potentially put the whole case, like, up in the air? Yeah, I'm so glad it wasn't, that wasn't the situation in this case. But so who were these suspects, Rachel? Well, as we mentioned earlier, the land on which Abby and Libby's bodies were discovered was owned privately by a 77-year-old Ron Logan. His home was just 1,400 feet from the scene of the crime. There were multiple records on file of Logan being violent towards women and having access to weapons, including handguns and knives. Logan's alibi was confirmed, though, by a friend for his whereabouts that afternoon. But after his friend had been consumed by guilt, he confessed to authorities Logan had made him lie and he had in fact been driving his car, despite receiving a ban on his license. Law enforcement ended up not progressing with charges against Logan, given his voice was inconsistent with that voice in the video, and he ended up dying some three years later. Yeah, I was going to say as well, like a 77-year-old man fighting, I imagine there was a fight, obviously that's speculation, but there being two victims here of being young you know, teenage girls, that would have been quite a task, wouldn't it? Yeah, and how many 77-year-olds wear hoodies as well? Good point. Very good point, Andrew. Then there was Daniel Nations. He was 32 years old 
and he was named as a person of interest in the case as he was arrested later on that year. On the 25th of September 2017, in Colorado for wielding a hatchet and threatening members of the general public on local trails, he was confirmed to be homeless and living on the streets of Delphi at the time of the girl's murders. He did not have an alibi for the 13th of February. However, he always protested his innocence. But I must add, though, he does bear a remarkable resemblance to the initial sketch issued back in 2017. Yeah, I'm guessing his name was probably quoted quite a bit then, if that sketch was published um, in Delphi. and People like, hey, I've seen that guy. He lives on the streets. Exactly. But if he was homeless, so you can't imagine a homeless person having an alibi often. No, exactly. And um, also worth noting as well with Daniel, like he didn't have access to a car. So that would have made his escape quite tricky from the the murder scene. Um, By all accounts, there would have been like blood, um, obviously, on on him. So, you know, that felt to me when I read into um, Daniel that um, it was a bit of a a far-fetched kind of case. But he definitely didn't do himself any favours wielding hatchets like no. at general public, did he? No, he didn't, know. Okay, 27-year-old Keegan Anthony Klein made headlines for his connections to the case, although he was never formally made a person of interest. Klein was actually known to create fake profiles on Snapchat and Instagram using photos of a well-known male model. According to police reports, he posed as a model in order to groom underage children, girls specifically, requesting nude photos and their home addresses so he could go and visit them. Reports suggest he was in contact with the girls through social media. However, he did deny any knowledge or involvement in their deaths. And he has only ever been arrested and charged in connection with the child sex abuse images and child exploitation tied to his social media accounts. It's worth noting that none of these suspects have been formally linked with each other or with the man now in police custody charged with a double homicide, Mr. Richard M. Allen. So listeners, it's probably time to admit that we've been leading you on a little throughout today's episode. Because back in October 2022, the 31st to be precise, Richard M. Allen was formally charged with the murder of Abby and Libby just 2,086 days after their lives were cruelly taken. Allen, he has pleaded not guilty, so far anyway, and the case hasn't even gone to trial yet. It's been postponed until later this year. Judge Francis Gould has, however, unsealed the affidavit which has led to Alan's arrest. The document included information related to the gun the suspect owned being tied to a bullet found at the scene of the crime, a car he was driving at the time of the murders, matching a vehicle parked not far away from where the bodies were discovered a day earlier, and the suspect himself having disclosed in a police interview way back in 2017 that he had been on the trail that afternoon for around two hours. And guess what he was doing on the trail for two hours? Oh, God. Watching people. Well, he was watching, but not people. He was watching fish. What? Yes, odd. Oh, my God. Why wasn't he charged sooner? (laughs) Um, Can I just say, though, um, very unusual in this particular case that the affidavit is uh, unsealed and, and kind of read out to the public, but... I think it had been like in this particular case, it had been so long that people had been kind of trying to identify the the killer. And also there'd been so many other suspects that had been kind of named in the eyes of the police. And then there'd been a lot of fake news and reports about these potential suspects that um 
like Carroll County just kind of wanted to come out and say, listen, guys, this is why we believe him to be the killer and kind of like quash, you know, potential um, reports of, yeah, I still don't believe he's he's the he's the killer. Yeah, it makes sense. And and actually, I also must admit, he looks nothing like the original sketch of the suspect, or in fact, I don't believe the updated one either. Um, but I actually believe he could be Bridge Guy from the blurred video footage that we've seen. But who was Alan? Well, before his arrest, his name had never been publicly linked to the case. At the time of the murders, he was 44 years old, and he lived just a five-minute drive away from where the bodies of Libby and Abby were found. He was a trained pharmacy technician working in a local CVS store, and he came into contact with the victims' families on multiple occasions following the murders. When when they actually did the some of the interviews with the local public, um, the local public, with the public, um, following his arrest, you you've got the classic like next door neighbors being interviewed and the pharmacy staff, you know, being asked questions, and everyone said he was the last person on their mind when it came to this case um he was like well established in the community he kept don't get me wrong he kept to himself kind of thing but super friendly helpful nice guy like how often do you hear that i know i was just thinking that to me that's a nail in the coffin when everyone said who's the last person we would have thought of it means he probably is the first person they should be looking at yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine what um, his wife and child must have gone through with him being named and, you know, being out there was such damning evidence that was included in that affidavit as well. It was kind of like a must have been a real shock. Exactly. But let's think about the families of the victims, Abby and Libby Rachel. So throughout the case, they have continued to express their gratitude to law enforcement and the community for their unwavering support. And now, they just hope that Richard M. Allen will be brought to justice. Their strength and determination are a testament to the enduring love they have for Abby and Libby. Yeah, and we really wanted to end the episode by remembering the best friends. Abby Williams, aged just 13 at the time of her death, was the daughter. Sorry, let me start again. And we really just wanted to end the episode by remembering these two best friends. Abby Williams, aged just 13 at the time of her death, was the daughter of Anna Williams and the granddaughter of Cliff Williams. Abby was an eighth grader at Delphi Community Middle School, where she played alto saxophone in the school band and she was on the volleyball team. She enjoyed crafting and art, such as photography and painting. And she was excited to join the softball team for the first time that coming summer. Abby was described as a kind-hearted, loving person who enjoyed playing the sax and spending time with her friends and her family. And also Libby German, who was aged 14 at the time of her death. She was the daughter of Derek German and Carrie Timmons. And she was raised by her grandparents, Mike and Betty Patty, after her parents' separation. And at the time of her death, she was an eighth grade student at Delphi Community Middle School. And she enjoyed playing volleyball, softball, soccer, and also swimming. Liberty played auto saxophone in a school band. And she excelled in academics. Libby was known for her intelligence, her love for sports, especially also known for her passion for photography. Both families have established foundations and scholarships in, in honour of Abby and Libby. The LNA Park Foundation was formed to celebrate and commemorate the lives of Libby German and Abby Williams by creating a space for appreciation of nature, art, play and athleticism for generations to come. 
The Abby Williams and Libby German Memorial Scholarship has also been established, funding scholarships for local students pursuing higher education in the city of Delphi. The strength and the resilience and the determination of both families have been truly inspiring. They continue to cope with the unimaginable pain and loss of their children, whilst at the same time striving to ensure that Abby and Libby are never forgotten and that their quest for justice remains at the forefront of public consciousness. So I've decided to end today's episode with a quote from Abby's mum, Anna Williams. Every day, my goal is to get up, to get dressed and to go to work, to just keep moving. She was my one and only. There's a lot of things we aren't going to have anymore. There isn't going to be a prom. There aren't going to be weddings or college. Those things that you just think you're going to be having, they've all been taken away. A very touching little quote there, Rachel. I know. And again, like how often, I, I appreciate that's not a victim impact statement. Obviously, we've not, not had them yet because of the court case not coming to trial, but... How often are we reading from parents that like it's all of those things that they miss out on that, you know, that that killer in those moments have taken the life of the child away, but also their future and their ambitions and that, you know, their parents hopes and dreams as well. Yeah, it's just I always think every death out there. It's just a ripple, isn't it? There's dozens and dozens of lives that are changed forever and people you wouldn't even expect obviously the the immediate family but it's such an impact on the community around it's just it's just sad and it's one of the reasons why we do this to remember the people and to highlight how these things happen to try and prevent them happening in, in the future absolutely and like i read some of the kind of comments from the families in the you know following the the discovery of the bodies and also over the years and you know some of the family members like blame themselves so becky patty um so the grandmother of libby um kind of was annoyed that she allowed them to go and find somebody to take them to the trails that day and she just goes around in circles thinking if i'd have told them to stay in you know they weren't allowed to go out they you know they must stay and and do something in the house it would have been a very different story kelsey libby's sister thinks she should have gone with them you know maybe three against one would have been a very different story again her being that bit older as well um and and derek as well the father who went to collect them kind of circles around thinking should i have gone earlier would that have made a difference like you know there's this killer has not only taking those lives away, but they've left the families like suffering, thinking what ifs. I know, and you can't like obviously you can't you can't let those thoughts get to you. It's easy saying that if you're not actually involved, but like what a could is surely you can't just think that because there's so many things in life and what if they would have done those things? Something else might have happened and then they might be thinking, well what if we just let them go out and play in the trail because they didn't know that that was gonna happen. You know, you don't you don't know. It's so sad. And I think we will revisit this. The trial's later on in the year. I think it's good for us to revisit this once that happens so we can see the verdicts. And I mean, he may be found not guilty, Rachel. We can see the verdicts. We can touch more onto thoughts from friends and family and also maybe bring in some friends of the pod, some of our American um, podcasters out there to co-host with us and so they can give their view from 
an American point of view as well, because we are obviously very British. It'd be good to get their thoughts and feelings on this case yeah. as well. That's a really good idea, actually. And, you know, on that point as well, like, knowing what you know now, do you think it's logical to be Richard M. Allen, who killed the girls? Yes, I think so. Um, I think that at first I thought maybe this was an accidental death. I mean, accidental as in whoever it was went out there to commit horrible things to these girls, but maybe not kill them. But the fact that there was a bullet on the scene, and I also think the only way you're going to keep two children in control is at the point of a gun or something which scares them to death. And mm-hmm. like to to the to the sisters' comment, maybe three against one, it's still been at gunpoint, wouldn't it? So, you know, it's it, at what point do you think he's not going to shoot me or try and escape? You you don't. You're going to be scared. To, they're going to be scared out of their life. So no, I think um, I think personally that it's just is my opinion. Obviously, it's likely it's going to be him because the the police put so much effort into this that they. They're not going to take a half chance on this one, are they? They're not going to no. take a half chance. He admitted in 2017 that he was on the trail. If they wanted to just yeah. jump at it, they could have just arrested him then. But And they've unsealed the affidavit, which means they've got confidence. There's some confidence there that they think this is the man. So I would say I'd be surprised if he's not found guilty. But... We only know when we see what comes up at the trial because there's obviously evidence and there's defence that we're not aware of yet, are we? We're not going to be aware to be based public. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops. Yeah, I, I definitely want to come back and revisit the case and, and you know, talk about some of the evidence that's going to be discussed in that in that court trial because um, I think it will shed a lot of light on what happened to those two girls. I think there is a lot more uh, that we don't know, obviously, um, that will come out so it uh, although it will be difficult to talk about because they were so young and um, so full of life and and had so much ahead of them as well I think it will shed a lot of light on you know what they went through and I know that again Libby's father said that they died heroes um, so it'd be great to to just you know uh, kind of put a, close, close the, the lid on this case and kind of round out when that court case happens Definitely, because it's so haunting. When I look at the pictures of the two, they just look like sweet, fun-filled, innocent school children, don't they? They look yeah. like, if you saw them walking down the street, you'd think they're just two happy little children going about yeah. their business. And it's probably like, when you see kids like that, or kids in general, it, it gives you a little bit of happiness because it's a little bit of hope for the future, isn't it? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's... It'd be good to bring, hopefully, a positive closure to this. So, Rachel, should I wrap this up then? Go for it. So this has been Season 3, Episode 1, entitled Down the Hill. And thank you, Ant, for requesting the case. And let us know, both Ant and everyone, what you think of today's episode. We do look forward to hearing from you. And so, if it's safe you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. It's a school holiday. Your children are running wild around the house. You're keen for them to get out, away from the computer, the TV, the phone, and into, into fresh air. And let's be honest, out from under your feet as well. But is it really safe out there for them? 
So thank you, everyone. Please do yeah, check our social medias. We'll be posting the video there of the suspect. We'll be posting the recording and also pictures of Abby and Libby. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for bringing the case to us, Ant. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to to hearing from you guys on, on what you thought of the co-hosting today, too. Yes. Thank you all. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.